last week in the talk I gave, I talked about the teaching of dependent origination. And um, we got through many of the links, but not all of them. So I wanted to continue with that teaching. Just a little bit of a recap at the beginning. This teaching is a description, I would say, of the habitual or usual processes of our bodies and minds that keep us caught in this cycle of suffering, keep us caught in this cycle of becoming, of selfing, of identification. It's a complex description with 12 links. And just to remind you, the traditional form begins with ignorance, with ignorance as condition. Mental formations come to be. With mental formation as condition, consciousness comes to be. With consciousness as condition, mentality, materiality comes to be. With mentality, materiality as condition, the six sense spaces. With six sense spaces as condition, contact, feeling, craving, clinging, becoming, birth, aging and death, and the entire mass of suffering, the Buddha says. This is understood as conditions that support, move us in the direction of being caught. I, I take some hope in the description of it as conditions as opposed to cause so much because with it understood as conditionality it points to the fact that if conditions change the process can head in another direction. In fact, I did mention I think last time that there's another form of dependent origination in the teachings that the Buddha offered that does describe a set of conditions beginning from suffering. Beginning from suffering. That when suffering is met with some degree of wisdom, of even if it's just an intellectual kind of curiosity, when if we hear a teaching, if we hear something that says it's possible to be free of suffering, there's a way we can do that that might spark our attention and lead to some kind of confidence or faith or a sense of interest to let me hear that teaching. 
And this is a condition that leads us, that kind of confidence, that faith leads us to engage with the teaching, perhaps leads us to taste some of the benefits of that teaching, which then reinforces the interest in continuing on that path. And so there is another form of dependent origination called transcendent dependent origination that also talks about the conditions that move us from suffering to freedom. And yet there is still this strong tendency for suffering to kind of hook into our usual habitual patterns and habits, our familiar ways of relating to experience, familiar ways to navigate the world, thinking if I'm suffering the best way out of this is if I get something I want, if I get rid of something I don't want. And so this kind of thought pattern, this kind of belief, this kind of view is essentially the ignorance that begins to propel this chain. And yet, right at the very beginning of this, from suffering, when suffering is met with curiosity, with interest, with wisdom, it can head away from ignorance. And this is, I find this very inspiring and promising and hopeful, a hopeful message in what the Buddha taught. And yet he did want us to understand how we get caught. I think this is why he spent so much um, um, time to really describe this process. I mean, it amazes me how detailed this process he described of how we get caught in suffering, how detailed it is, how clear it is, how clear it can be. So this teaching on how we get caught in suffering, there's kind of two ways it can be understood in the in the suttas and in the commentaries. In one form, it can be understood as kind of conditions from our past lives propel us forward into the next life. And the we tumble forward in this life and pick up these same habits and patterns and then potentially get born into a next life. And so the, the one way of understanding this Uh, teaching of dependent origination is how the cycle of rebirths comes to be. Another way it is understood and can be understood in the teachings, uh, in the suttas and in the commentaries, is as something that happens in a moment. That in a split second, when ignorance arises in the mind, at that very beginning of that chain, when ignorance arises in the mind, it's already shaping our choices, our habits, our direction, 
what we choose to do, how we choose to engage. It's already shaping feeling, leading to craving, leading to clinging, leading to becoming. And so in a moment, this, it's like when ignorance is arising in a moment, it's like the entire suffering is picked up with ignorance. And if there can be a seeing through the ignorance, and many, many of the teachings the Buddha pointed to in, in his teachings talked about how one uproots ignorance. A couple of key pieces. A certain bhikkhu approached the Blessed One and said to him, Is there one thing through which the abandoning of which ignorance is abandoned and true knowledge arises? And it goes on. Ignorance is the one thing through abandoning of which ignorance is abandoned. So that sounds a little recursive. So the person goes on to ask, but but venerable sir, how should a bhikkhu see ignorance to be abandoned? And the Buddha says, when one knows and sees, the eye is impermanent, ignorance is abandoned. When one knows and sees form as impermanent, when one knows and sees whatever feeling is impermanent, mental formations impermanent, basically the five aggregates of clinging as impermanent, then ignorance will be abandoned. In another place, he offers a different perspective on abandoning ignorance. He says, when someone, when, when one has heard, nothing is worth adhering to. One directly knows everything. And I think it's more than just hearing, it's hearing and understanding directly, understanding directly. Nothing is worth clinging to. Nothing is worth clinging to because it is impermanent. So over and over again, the the Buddha pointed to ignorance as being a, a key for us. And I'd like to review these first few links in the chain, we really kind of started last time, we started kind of where it's easy to see these links. We've got these sense bases, and we can know that we've got contact, we have a sight, we can notice the feeling tone of a sight, and then we might notice how we tend to like pleasant feeling. We tend to want to get rid of unpleasant feeling, the craving that tends to arise based on feeling. That's where we began last time, and we went through those links up through basically suffering, how that process from the point of contact with the eye and the habitual tendency of craving, clinging, becoming, identification, birth, will ultimately 
lead to a sense of struggle and stress because we cannot hold on to something that is impermanent. It will fade. It will fall apart. And so the whole project of trying to hold on to something or believing, actually, the, the, the motivation through which that craving and clinging happens is believing that holding on to it will bring some lasting happiness. And then it's proved over and over again it doesn't. So that sense, that belief that holding on to something will bring a lasting happiness, holding on to the pleasant, getting rid of the unpleasant, will bring a lasting happiness. This is one way to understand the beliefs that are shaped by ignorance. And so it is ignorance not understanding the nature of experience as impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable, not understanding the nature of suffering that leads us to think having what I want will make me happy, getting rid of what I don't want will make me happy. So this ignorance, this first link in the chain, in, the, in this description of dependent origination. Ignorance is also conditioned. It is conditioned by suffering also. As I, I said, you know, sometimes suffering might lead to, if it's met with some wisdom, or if it's met with a kind of a, a sense of, is there, the, 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 the Buddha had this idea or this phrase, is, is there someone who can tell me a thing or two about why we suffer? And he said, ignorance, suffering will lead to either bewilderment or ignorance, confusion of mind, or it will lead to search. Does someone know a way or two out of this suffering? If that search happens to come upon some of the teachings that offer a way out of suffering, then faith can arise. That whole process of wholesome qualities can arise and lead us towards the letting go of the habits and patterns that lead to suffering. But much of the time, suffering leads to bewilderment, confusion. We just stay stuck in our traditional, familiar habits and patterns. Trying to get what we want, trying to get what we don't want. And those, the, the beliefs, so the, the, I think we talked about this a little bit, at one point, the greed or the aversion, the wanting or the not wanting, is kind of the action or the tumbling forward of the mind that believes that action will be somehow beneficial to us. So it really is the belief or the view that those that, that kind of underpin greed and aversion those beliefs or views, they're delusion. They're rooted in ignorance. 
They're rooted in not understanding experiences, impermanent, unreliable, not self. The um, kind of flipping on its head that our minds typically do, that Bhante talked about the other night, the vipalasa. We tend to take what is impermanent to be permanent. We tend to take what is unreliable to be reliable, and we tend to take what is not self to be self. We tend to take what is not beautiful to be beautiful. Another place the Buddha describes, he he met somebody who was saying things like, oh, I found the permanent, blissful, eternal state. And the Buddha responded, alas, Sir Brahmabhaka is immersed in ignorance insofar as he will say of what is actually impermanent that it is permanent and will say of what is actually unstable that it is stable and will say of actually what is non-eternal that it is eternal. He is immersed in ignorance. And so these, this perversion or this standing on his head of, of the way we tend to, to meet experience, this is kind of where the ignorance is, is rooted. And we have talked some about how to see through some of that. But what we're going to talk about tonight is what happens when we don't see through it. The kind of mess we get ourselves in. What happens there. So suffering tends to condition ignorance. It's not seeing things as they are. The nature of experience is impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable. Not seeing the truth of suffering, the truth of the arising of suffering, the truth of the ending of suffering, and that there is a way to the ending of suffering. So with, with ignorance as condition, the next link in this process of our being caught in this cycle, with ignorance as condition, mental formations come to be. So mental formations, Anushka spoke, spoke about the other night in the teaching on the five aggregates. Mental formations, we can say, are the kind of um, mental processes of our uh, the, 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 our mental processes that tend to shape our choices, our actions, our how we how we engage in the world. There's a lot of them. This is a really big category of in the Buddha dividing up our experience in these five five aggregates of body, feeling, perception, mental formations, and consciousness. Mental formations is huge. It contains, you know, it 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 it, uh, it includes all of our emotional life. It includes um, mind states. So sleepiness would be one of those. Actually, love, mindfulness, also mental formations. So mental formations can be both wholesome and unwholesome. 
mindfulness, concentration, wisdom, all mental formations. And essentially our project here, our, what we're doing here is to explore with mindfulness uh, the mental formations that arise and we begin to see that the wholesome mental formations tend to move us in the direction of more happiness and ease and peace. Essentially puts us on that alternative dependent origination chain, transcendent dependent origination. And we see that as we engage with unhelpful, unskillful habits of mind, unskillful, unhelpful mental formation, it tends to create more suffering. And it's not a mistake to see that. In seeing that with mindfulness, it's very different to see unhelpful mental formations with mindfulness than it is to simply be caught in unhelpful mental formations, which tends to reinforce them, just dig that groove deeper, whatever one frequently ponders becomes the inclination of the mind. I believe Bonte mentioned that earlier today. And so when we are, the pondering of un, unhelpful um, mental formations is the kind of the kind of picking up the belief inside of them and following it. Yep, that's what's going to make me happy. But the mindfulness of it is a different thing. And we we feel, we may feel, we do feel the suffering that comes with those unhelpful mental formations, but we're seeing it with wisdom instead of believing that this is, this is the way that I need to uh, act or engage in order for happiness to follow. And so mental formations includes a lot of our emotional, uh, our emotions, both wholesome and unwholesome emotions, both wholesome and unwholesome mind states. It includes thoughts. It includes beliefs. It includes agendas things that we wouldn't think of as emotions. It includes intention and motivation. It's a a big category. It tends to be, it tends to be, it's those kind of things that arise in our mind that impel us. Anushka used the word drive the other day. I like the word shape. Tends to shape our experience mental formations shape the rest of our experience. They tend to tumble forward and shape our experience. And so in the chain of dependent origination, with ignorance as condition, mental formations come to be. So in this particular chain, the mental formations that are described in this pattern are already informed by ignorance. Already shaped by confusion, belief that having something will make me happy because I think it's permanent, reliable. There's something out there that will be permanent and reliable. And so in this chain, the mental formations that are kind of shaped are unhelpful. Tends to be unhelpful. They're already shaped by ignorance. And so out of ignorance, we, because of the ignorance arising, we kind of take the most obvious move 
to get rid of the unpleasant, to hold on to the pleasant, based on what we've believed in the past, all that we've known. And that's all that we've known, is that getting something I want is going to make me feel better. We talked about that the other day, noticing the, the feeling tones of the links. You know, when, the, when we get what we want, we have a little bit of the having brings us some happiness. But also the momentary alleviation from the wanting feels good because it lets go that the mind, um, the mind is released from its association with the unpleasantness of wanting for a few moments. That feels good. And that's all that we tend to know. So if I get something I want, I'll feel better. We don't think about or we don't understand the possibility of a different way. We talked about that. We've been talking about that probably in almost every talk, that if we look at the craving with the mindfulness instead of acting on it, being curious about it, we may see the craving fall away without having gotten what it wants and experience the release from the suffering of that wanting without ever getting what the wanting wants. I described that experience of feeling like when the wanting that to look at people who were doing walking with me, when the wanting fell away, it felt like being released from a vice grip. So, But based on ignorance, the ideas, the habits, the patterns of, I gotta, I've got to do this. It's like, it's just assumed. We take that, those misperceptions to be truth, and we tumble forward into these mental formations. So I want to explore mental formations a little bit from a a perspective slightly different than Anushka offered, or similar, but just with different, different teachings offered. In the teaching on the five aggregates around mental formations, the Buddha offered a definition of mental formations uh, different from the one I just offered you, where I I talked about, you know, what are mental formations? And I described, you know, the emotions, mind states, thoughts, beliefs, views, agendas, motivations, those are all mental formations. But the Buddha describes it in a different way in one place. He describes it as a process instead. What do sankharas do? What do mental formations do? Somebody asked him, why do you call them mental formations? And in this particular translation, I'm going to read the person um, doing the translation, translated this phrase, this uh, word sankara, not as mental formation, but as fabrication. And it, uh, it makes the translation kind of work to translate it as fabrication. So I'm, I'm going to use this translation for now. So someone asked the Buddha, why do you call them fabrications? The Buddha responds, because they fabricate fabricated things. <laughs> Thus they are called fabrications. What do they fabricate? They fabricate form as a fabricated thing. 
they fabricate feeling as a fabricated thing. So here he's going through the aggregates. They fabricate perception as a fabricated thing. They fabricate fabrications as a fabricated thing. And they fabricate consciousness as a fabricated thing. When I first read this, it's like my jaw dropped. It's like, oh, I see that the, this, this is the, that the word driver is good. It's like this, this is the engine of creation of the aggregates, mental formations, fabrication, the process nature of the fabrications of these mental formations is to fabricate the aggregates over and over again. So how does this work? Let's give an example. I'll give two examples. So uh, a fabrication of unhelpful fabrication, anger. So how does anger shape, again, I like that word, how does anger shape our form? Well, when anger arises, often there is an experience of pressure, of heat, of kind of, there's, there's bodily sensation that arises. Anger can actually distort our face, physically changing the shape of our face when anger is arising. So anger shapes our body. When anger is arising, there's an effect. When anger is arising, feelings often become unpleasant. So it shapes the feeling. Occasionally, I've noticed at the very beginning of anger, just as it's arising, a little bit of the sense of the becoming and the sense of pleasantness, like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm in control here. There's a little hit of pleasant sometimes at the beginning of anger, and then quickly it can go right into unpleasant. So noticing, we can, it shapes, the anger can shape the feeling tone. It shapes our perception, how we recognize things. When we're angry, we tend to be perceiving things through a lens of anger. We may interpret, you know, maybe somebody is looking at us with an expression on their face, and we interpret it as them having some kind of judgment about us or something, and, and, and we don't know what's going on in their mind. Maybe they had some gas, you know? <laughs> but we're, we may be seeing through that lens of anger, so our perception takes in, that person is judging me. That person is angry at me. So anger shapes how we perceive experience. When um, anger's arising, our consciousness tends to be shaped by this. It, it, it's like we will tend to land on things that confirm what makes us angry, not to see things that disconfirm what make us angry. So it actually kind of creates these gaps in what we experience, what we become conscious of. So it shapes our consciousness and it tends to construct or shape more anger. A wholesome mental formation, love. 
may shape the face, the body to have pleasant feeling. It may shape the, the, the body to kind of feel light, create a softness of the face. Often couldn't create a feeling of pleasantness. We're, our perceptions are shaped by the quality of kindness. We're more connected to other people. Creates conditions for more connectedness. So the, uh, this description of the sankharas, the mental formations, as being what shapes the aggregates, fabricates form, they fabricate feeling, they fabricate perception, they fabricate fabrications, they fabricate consciousness. The next two links in the chain of dependent origination are consciousness and mentality, materiality. I'll get into this a little bit more later, but essentially those two links are um, kind of shorthand for the five aggregates. And so this definition of mental formations as the shapers or the constructors of the aggregates. I look at this almost a little elaboration of these links. Mental formations, conditions, consciousness, and the nama-rupa, mentality, materiality. So not only are emotions, mind states, mental formations, but also views, beliefs, ideas. All of our mental formations, not only do they tend to shape our forward tumbling on, but they have been shaped by our past, by our conditioning. And so... That's kind of how this cycle um, goes into a circle. So what, what's arising as a mental formation? It's not just arising, you know, it, the ignorance that is shaping the mental formations has a long history. Has a long history in our lives, in our own personal experience. It actually has a long history through our cultures through our um, family history, our family dynamics. And so views, opinions, beliefs, also in this realm of mental formations, this is an important area to kind of be curious about, be interested in what is the mind believing when it's caught in some kind of a, a trap or a kind of a struggle. There is some view that is operating in there. Some of those views are kind of personally conditioned. They, they all, according to this teaching, you know, they come back to some form of ignorance at the deepest level, some kind of belief in something being permanent, reliable, controllable, sense of self. But there's a lot of flavors of beliefs that we each have based on our own lives, our own personal conditioning, and based on our cultures. 
when we start to um, get curious, we can get curious about what's being believed when we're, we feel like we're caught or stuck. This is a, something I've seen very useful in my own practice when there's a kind of a pattern or habit of being really stuck in something. I'll sometimes just drop in the question, what's being believed right now? Because beliefs are often functioning, when they're not seen, they are functioning as if they are simply fact. We're not, we're not aware that they're beliefs. We're taking them to just be truth. And so if we can kind of be curious about, well, what's being believed and see a belief? So for, for example, in my own practice of looking at anger one of the, and self-hatred, one of the beliefs in there was, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy. When I could see that, oh, that's the belief that's happening. That's the belief. There's a believing unworthiness is happening, believing I'm unworthy. You know, it wasn't, it's, I find often in that kind of place, we might think I'm supposed to, and this is, I certainly did plenty of this. It's like, oh, I think I'm unworthy. I'm, I'm worthy. Trying to kind of convince myself I'm worthy. Trying to convince myself I'm doing good or something along those lines. And, uh, you know, sometimes, sometimes that can be supportive. Like Bonte was talking about the other day, you know, like, yep, I'm on the path. I've I'm, I'm got right view. I'm looking at things in a good way. I'm you know, following the precepts, so it's okay. I'm not failing. I'm on the path. So sometimes that can be helpful, but also sometimes there can be a really entrenched view like this I'm unworthy feeling in my experience, just like inherently somehow I'm unworthy, that um, trying to convince myself I wasn't unworthy, it was like that part of my mind that believed I was unworthy was just like going, yeah, you can't fool me. I know that I'm unworthy. And so I began to recognize that what was more helpful was recognizing it as a belief. I didn't have to stop believing it but I needed to see it was a belief. And that was possible. I could see that I am unworthy was a belief. I believed it, but I saw that it was a belief. And that kind of, that gives a little bit of a crack in the mind to hold the possibility that as a belief, it may or may not be true. So this exploration of beliefs can be really powerful when we're, we're suffering, when we're struggling. So some of our views come from our personal conditioning, our own, our own, like, how we grew up, our own personal lives that, that were lived, the conditioning that we were shaped by. And some of our views come from kind of our collective or cultural backgrounds. Our family culture, culture of work, culture of school, culture of society, what we get in, the culture we take in through, through television, through what we watch, through what we look at on the internet. We are shaped by the mental formations of the world. So those mental formations that we're shaped by, those fabrications, they're not just our own. They come in 
and start shaping us. And often these mental formations from family, from culture, you know, they come in at such a young age that we don't, you know, we don't question them. So these kinds of views can even be more difficult to see as views, as beliefs, because we tend to share them with people around us. There may be, for instance, mental formations related to the concept of race. There are mental formations related to the concept of race, beliefs, ideas, views that we all have been shaped by our own upbringing, what our beliefs are around race. They're all ideas. And yet the shaping of that, when, we, when it's not seen, those beliefs, those views around race can lead to racism. So much suffering has come from this kind of unseen ignorance, unseen beliefs, just taking the fabrications, the mental formations that we were swimming in, we were stewing in as in our cultures as children, taking those to be the way it is. So much suffering generated by this. One scholar has a beautiful way of framing this, of of speaking to this, tying it back to the vipalasa, the distorted perception. The professor... um, is a professor of Sanskrit at a university in Sri Lanka. His name is Professor Mahinda Pali Hawadana. And I got this from a paper that he wrote, which is a great, great paper. Um, I recommend you read it after the retreat. It's called Theravada Perspective on Causation and Resolution of Conflicts. He says... This process of distorted perception, of placing every bare perception into a framework of emotions and beliefs that have come out of our past, our history, our conditioning, robs the freshness out of our experience. But we are not aware of this constant interference of the past. Because of this unawareness, which is our ignorance and our delusion, we see humanity as fragmented as me and others, us and them, and in various other stereotypes, skin color, ethnicity, language, ideology included. This is where wars come from. This is where hatred comes from. This ignorance. And so we are shaped by our mental formations and we begin to see our world through this. As Professor Pali Hawadana says, we don't see the interference of the past. We are receiving information. It's like we've got these um, lenses on with our beliefs and our views. And we tend to 
take in information that confirms those beliefs and views, and we tend to not take in information that disconfirms those beliefs and views. This is a fairly well-studied phenomenon in psychology in recent years. So with mental formation as condition, consciousness comes to be. Based on our views, our ideas, our beliefs, our perceptions, our emotion, we will take in certain information and not take in other information. This filtering mechanism does seem to be pretty deeply built into our psyche. It's, um, there's a, a, a process um, in psychological terms called selective attention, which if you have some kind of an agenda, a thing you need to do, that agenda will kind of support, um, that agenda is supported by a process of mind that will select information that is useful for that agenda. And it will screen out and not present information that is not useful for that agenda. There's a famous study, many of you may have heard about this, famous study about selective attention. I'll describe it anyway, because it's such a great example of this kind of selected attention and this filtering mechanism of how even something as simple as an agenda can have us see things see certain things and not see other things. So in this study, they had people watch a video um, of people passing a basketball between other people. Two teams of people, people in one color shirt and people in another color shirt. And they were asked to count the number of times a basketball passed between the hands of people with one particular color shirt. So a pretty focused kind of agenda. You have to track, you know, they're, they're passing the basketball pretty fast. You have to track it pretty closely. And so at the end of the video, they were asked, okay, how many times did you see the basketball pass between the people? And most of them could answer it correctly. And then um, occasionally, occasionally, somebody would say something like, was there like a gorilla in that video? And... Indeed, while this had been happening, a person in a gorilla suit had kind of walked right into the middle of the people passing the basketball, kind of danced around a little bit, beat its chest, you know, kind of did gorilla-like things, (laughs) and then walked off. And very, very obviously, I mean, if you are looking at the video without an agenda, you are not going to miss the gorilla. And yet the vast majority of people do not see the gorilla. And what's even a little more scary, so they, they uh, 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 sometimes they would play the video back, you know, like somebody said, was there like a gorilla in there? You know, they'd play it back, and, and then, yep, there's a gorilla there. <laughs> um, some people would say, you switched the video on us. 
that has to be a different video because I would have seen the gorilla. That is ignorance, too. I mean, the, there's a kind, there's a kind of ignorance in the not, you know, not seeing. It's kind of there's a the, the there's a it's not it's not the deeper ignorance of, you know, believing our own sense perception is reliable. There's a kind of, but there is a kind of way that, you know, we can see with this kind of example that. Mental formations do shape what we see. We do not see everything that's out there. We tend to think our minds are like video cameras and our, our, our eyes are like video cameras and our ears are like tape recorders and that we see and hear everything that's here. But that is not the way our minds work. Believing that is the way our minds work is ignorance because... We are, we are definitely shaped by these agendas. Even something as simple as an agenda can shape what we see and what we don't see. And then think about it, you know, less than, like, something more than agenda. Think about it as, you know, a, a, a whole view or pattern around, around race and how that shapes what we see and what we don't see, and how we see it. It's, it's humbling. It is humbling to see this and to, to recognize this as the way our minds work. And yet, knowing that it is the way our minds work can be helpful, because then we wouldn't be like that person that says, it has to be a different video. We say, oh, I, would, I didn't see that. I missed that. And we maybe then can learn from something that we didn't see. So our consciousness is shaped by mental formations and the, 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 the mental formations shape not only our consciousness but also the next link, the mentality-materiality. Mentality-materiality is essentially defined as the other four aggregates form the other the other uh, mental aggregates feeling perception and mental formations there's such a close dependence on consciousness and and these other aspects they they inform each other fabrications shape our consciousness what we take in tends to shape what we feel and perceive and think how we feel our emotions. And so at this point we're, we're kind of back at the place where we started last week. We've got a body and a mind, conscious body, a conscious mind in a physical body that perceives and feels. And we're receiving input, contact, sight, sound, smell, taste, touch. But you can see at this point, it is not a neutral experience. It's already shaped by past conditioning. 
the unawareness of that past conditioning is the quote from Professor Pali Hawadana says, the unawareness of that conditioning is our ignorance. The unawareness that we are placing our perceptions, every sense contact is kind of, as he puts it, placing every bare perception into a framework of emotion and belief that have come out of our past, our history, our conditioning. That's what's happening. So it's very humbling to see this. And, and yet the, 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 the teaching here that the Buddha is offering is ultimately hopeful. I mean, it's, it's kind of a very humbling teaching to hear how much we miss and how much our conditioning shapes what we're even seeing and hearing and perceiving. And yet to know this, to know this information is a way that we can begin to move in a different direction. The wisdom that can come from being curious about, well, what is a human experience? How is this experience shaped? How is it shaping my my next experience? The seeing of that with mindfulness begins to uproot and undermine that ignorance. And so this is our exploration here. Last time in the talk, I I said that, that there's a teaching that pointed to any of the links. There's a away, the Buddha said, see that wherever you are, whatever you're noticing. If it's the arising of confusion, know that. There can be freedom right there in in meeting that with curiosity, with a sense of um, uh, with mindfulness and curiosity and a sense of allowing it to show itself, not to follow it believe its story, but to be curious about it. See what happens as you notice it. You have all talked about in your, in your meetings, have all talked about seeing something like this. Seeing how being mindful of something creates a different perspective. More space, a little more ease. When, when we can see, oh, what's happening? Oh, it's anger that's happening. It's just anger. I can be with that. Or sadness. Oh, it's sadness that's happening. Sometimes it feels like a relief to actually acknowledge this is what's happening. And so we begin to taste the benefit of mindfulness and wisdom. We feel in the moment we can feel this does lead a different direction. We gain some sense of faith and confidence, maybe even joy and delight. Some of you have talked about that, a sense of, it's so delightful to see this in such a different way, even if it's frustration or something that we think of as unpleasant. To see it, oh, it's frustration that's arising. 
several of you, many of you have talked about laughing and seeing these like habits and patterns come up. That's kind of the delight and joy that arise in connection with this mindfulness. And those are some of the steps on the path of transcendent dependent origination. From faith, the engagement with confidence and faith is a kind of a motivator that gets us to act on the teachings. With faith is conditioned delight arises. Delight is conditioned joy. With joy is conditioned tranquility. I may be missing a few in here. With tranquility is conditioned happiness. With happiness is conditioned concentration. That was not what I thought. Happiness is a supporting condition for concentration? I thought it was like holding on to something. With concentration as a condition, knowing and seeing things as they are, beginning to see impermanent, unreliable, uncontrollable. And that leading on to kind of a disenchantment with our familiar beliefs, our familiar habits and patterns. We get disenchanted with our idea that having something will make me happy. You know, it's a good kind of disenchantment. And then the mind begins to let go. A sense of not being bound up with all of our greed and aversion. The word is dispassion. The word may not have a flavor that sounds appealing, but it's a very much a, a sense of release and letting go. And then release, freedom. So right in the middle of looking at being with some pattern or habit. I talked about, you know, being with self-hatred and seeing something so clearly, seeing the belief, noticing the self-hatred coming up, seeing a thought and seeing the thought conditioning a belief, being believed, and then recognizing this is all just a constructed But in the mind, it's nothing. It's just a construction. Fell apart. Such a deep seeing, right? In the midst of looking at something so challenging, the mind kind of shifting and moving towards letting go. Bliss, ease, peace. And I'll tell you, If I can do it, you can do it. There was a lot of self-hatred, a lot of miserableness. I was such a miserable person. This practice has transformed this mind and this body. It is possible. It takes 
confidence and commitment and willingness to be with wherever we wake up in this process of arising conditions of suffering. We don't have to find the end of suffering. We don't have to find some kind of place of not having suffering in order to then see some kind of insight into Nibbana. Suffering is the condition when met with wisdom and mindfulness. Suffering is a condition that leads to freedom. So let's sit for a moment. Freedom is possible. The Buddha said, if it wasn't possible, I wouldn't ask you to do it. It's possible. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.